We're just going to read verses uh, 8 through 18. So you can follow along in your phones or in your Bibles if you brought them or on the screen. It'll be there as well. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. And on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on the Mount of Zion, there will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire. And Joseph a flame, Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Amen. Obadiah hits hard immediately. Again, he's one of those prophets that doesn't really introduce himself. We've talked about that so far in the book of the 12 minor prophets. Some of them just don't really introduce themselves. Obadiah, it's probably the most true of. Like he says nothing and he just hits the ground running. But you do have to leave here this morning kind of feeling accomplished because how many other days of the year when you come to church can you say you've read more than half of a book of the Bible when you leave, right? I mean, like you guys got to feel pretty good about it. That's something. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament and almost the shortest book in the Bible, but it still counts, right? That's the way I thought when I was in the seventh grade, the first time I read it. So just let me give you guys a little window into 13-year-old Kyle. I know that's scary, the, the mind of a 13-year-old, but just go there with me. Uh, when I first came to Jesus, there was this, this group of, of friends of mine uh, and a guy who was in college that started a small group, a, a Bible study. And I started going to it, and the first assignment in that Bible study was to read the book of James, okay? We were reading through the book of James. And so I went home and I read the book of James. I liked it. It was good. It made sense to me. But being kind of an overachiever, I decided I've read some of the New Testament. I need to read some of the Old Testament. Here's the problem, though. Some of the Old Testament is intimidatingly long, right? You look at Genesis, it's 50 chapters. You look at Numbers, it's 36 chapters. And it's called Numbers, okay? Remember, I'm 13. I'm not opening a book called Numbers. <laughs> Isaiah, 66 
chapters, right? And then there's Obadiah. And so I sat down and I read Obadiah, all 21 verses of Obadiah. And I went back the next week to the, the, the Bible study, feeling like a scholar, okay? I came back thinking like, I'm going to teach this Bible study on James. Like, you guys read the New Testament. I've been reading the Old Testament, all right? So I, I was feeling pretty good about myself. It's, it's short. That, that, that's just one of the most memorable components of Obadiah. There's not much here, right? It's, it's an easy read, right? But even as easy a read as it is, even as short as it is, it's telling you what is a, a pretty long story. There's, there's a lot that's been happening in the background. And it's really not just telling us a long and complicated story. It's confronting one of our deepest questions that I think we all wrestle with. What you've seen so far as we've moved through the, the beginning of the Minor Prophets and the Book of the Twelve is that this day of the Lord is coming, right? The people of God are going to experience this day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not just one day. It, it's composed of all of these ways in which God sort of interrupts our lives with these clear and evident moments of his judgment, of the, of the work of his hand, right? His salvation even. The day of the Lord is coming. But the question ringing through all of their minds is, what about all of these other nations? What about them? That's, that's a question that rings out in their minds. What about all these people who have created even more trouble, who have committed even greater acts of sin and injustice than we have? What is God going to do with evil in his good world? Like We, we wrestle with that even now. That, that continually comes up. And the other prophets that we've looked at so far are going to bring it up. Hosea and, and Amos are going to talk about it. Joel is going to talk about it. But Obadiah and Jonah, in these next two weeks, really hone in on the question of the nations. What are we to do with the nations? What is God going to do with the nations? And the question is answered in kind of a surprising way. It hits closer to home than I think Israel probably expected and closer than, than we might expect. Obadiah speaks to Edom. It's a place that we're probably not all that familiar with. Uh, you may not know exactly anything about uh, Edom. But Israel and Edom have this very complicated family history. Israel, you might remember, got its name from Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Very familiar biblical figure, right? You remember Jacob. He's hard to forget. But God eventually gave him a different name. His name was Israel. Israel meaning one who struggles with God. Maybe you remember that story of, of Jacob wrestling with God at Bethel, right? It's a familiar story. He gets this new name, and thus his 12 sons, this nation, becomes Israel. But Edom got its name from Esau, Jacob's brother, another familiar biblical figure. You can't forget Esau. He's the hairy one, right? Jacob's brother, and, and Jacob himself had deep issues with one another. And what you see in Obadiah is that the issues just continued between Jacob's people and Esau's people. There was always a tension. It was a problem and it eventually became hatred. And by the time of Obadiah's life, they were outright enemies with one another. Legitimate enemies on a, a world stage. And the background to what we're reading today is that the, the, this day of destruction that had been promised actually came for Jerusalem. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and carried off so many of its people as, as slaves, right? It's this gut-wrenching moment for the people of Judah. 
And when Babylon comes to wreck Jerusalem and carry them off, guess who celebrates their downfall? Guess who's standing in the background cheering? It's Edom. There's a tension there. And Israel, Judah in particular, is wrestling with it. Uh, maybe you've read Psalm 137. It's what we call an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory psalms are those that just sound really dark. There are a few of them. There's not a lot of them. They don't seem to have any sort of redemptive factor to them at all. It's just anger and hurt and this desire for vengeance and vindication and retribution. And Psalm 137 is, is, is very familiar, I think, to a lot of people. But one of the lines that you may not remember from Psalm 137 is this. The psalmist says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to the foundations. That's Edom. Tradition even held that Edom had actually burned the temple. The Babylonians left Jerusalem. They carried all these people off back to Babylon. And the tradition held that Edom had come into Jerusalem not only to loot, but to burn the temple. You probably caught that little part as we were reading. You should not wait at the crossroads for their fugitives. For their, it's a word that means something like their escapees, their refugees, the people who are trying to get away from the destruction. You shouldn't wait at the crossroads for them. Hand them over. This is Edom. It's pretty dark stuff. This is what had happened. And the question in Judah's mind, the people of, of God, is what's God going to do with that? Because Israel was obviously guilty of sin and injustice, and these prophets make that so clear to us. But they had also suffered sin and injustice at the hands of other nations around them. They had suffered as well. They were, they were not alone in their sin. And they wrestled with the question that we so often do. What is God going to do with evil? How will God respond to evil? How will God respond to my enemies? To the one who's hurt me? How am I to respond to my enemies? What am I to do with this? How am I to make sense of it? And Obadiah, though he's speaking a message to Edom, it's all about Edom. It's meant for the ears of Judah, for the people of, of Israel and the southern kingdom in particular. Remember, there's two different kingdoms and that can get confusing. But he, he intends for God's people to hear this. It's not just about Edom. Because in hearing this, they'll find comfort knowing God sees what's happening in the world. God recognizes the evil that's being perpetrated by so many people. He sees what's so wrong with it, and he's not going to sit back much longer. He's going to address it. God will deal with it. This is the hope of what's happening here. God will not wait much longer. But even as Obadiah speaks to Edom... You can hear God's words to his own people. Yeah, that's what, that's what Edom has done with their enemies. The question God is asking is, what are you doing with your enemies? What do you do with those who've hurt you? How do you address that? How do you deal with that? What about your brother? What about your hate? There's this question that's just subtly being asked, whispered in the book of Obadiah. And... As you can imagine, with the darkness of what's kind of played out there, Obadiah begins with pretty heavy words for Edom, right? It, it doesn't sound nice. There doesn't seem to be any sort of redemptive quality about it. There's no real hope. It's just judgment and retribution. It's the sort of thing that makes us uncomfortable. 
But you might notice, like from the beginning, he wants to make clear. He calls Edom Esau by their proper name, right? By their ancestor. He calls Judah Jacob. He wants to draw attention to this. Edom has not just done a wrong, they have done a wrong to their brother. And he will not let you forget it. He keeps up with all of these reminders. In verse 10, he said it. You probably heard it. Because of the violence done against your brother, you will be covered in shame. He wants them to remember it. He won't let them forget. And there's this stark sort of contrast, right? This is not just an act of violence. That's problem enough in God's eyes. God has an issue with the violence that exists within our world. If you want to know more about that, read the story of Noah, right? Violence is the issue that God is addressing in Noah's story. Violence is bad enough, but this is violence done not to just some foreign enemy you can't relate to or know anything about, that you don't understand. No, this is violence done against your family. Violence done against those who are closest to you, right? And yeah, there had been issues in this family for a long time. Let's be real. Uh, there's a point in Deuteronomy. If you guys remember, Deuteronomy is like a, a sermon that Moses is preaching to the people of God before they enter into the promised land. And one of the things he has to address is, how are you supposed to interact with all of these nations that are already there? What are you supposed to do with all of those people? And one of those groups are the Edomites. And Moses says to, to Israel, because they need a reminder. He says, don't despise an Edomite for he is your brother. All these other nations, he, he's got pretty harsh words for, but Moses says, don't despise an Edomite. He is your brother. Israel had to be reminded. But Edom here has committed an act of injustice and, and sin that is greater than anything that's really happened in their past relationship. And that's saying a lot, obviously, because you probably remember the longer story, right? You remember Jacob and Esau, maybe. Jacob was smart. But he was conniving. He was manipulative. As, as conniving and manipulative as you can imagine a human being being, that was Jacob. That's who he is. His brother Esau was like the alpha male. He was loved by his father Isaac. He was the firstborn. But he was a fool. And it's very clear. Jacob recognized he was a fool. And he manipulated his brother out of his birthright, his inheritance as a firstborn son, right? That's not a small thing for him to have done. Esau's a fool, but Jacob is a manipulator, right? And then later, he literally stole his dying father's blessing from his brother Esau. Isaac lays there blind, old, dying in the bed, and he comes into the room pretending to be his brother Esau. It's a symbolic thing, but it means so much. He steals his brother's blessing. Esau had all this to be angry about, right? And Jacob being true to himself, rather than confronting what he's done, acknowledging what he's done, trying to make it right, he runs away like a coward. And he's gone for something like 15 years. He finally comes back home because he's gotten himself in trouble elsewhere. Surprise. And... He's expecting that he's going to confront an angry and, and murderous brother, that he may die in all of this. He's scared for his life, and instead, Esau does something surprising. He embraces his brother. He forgives him. The problem is, that Obadiah is getting at, is that that same forgiveness and reconciliation did not characterize the relationship between these two different people, Esau's people and Jacob's people, Israel and Edom, right? Right? 
there was this deep bitterness and resentment that came to exist between them. And that's important. Like at the simplest level, I think there's this reminder for us as the church. Like we've got all of these groups, these titles, these denominations, all these theological perspectives, all these opinions on particular matters that exist in the modern day church. And we identify ourselves with these things. The church is guilty of the same kind of tribalism that we see within politics in our culture, right? We're guilty of the same kinds of things sometimes. Some of our our differences with one another are good. We ought to celebrate the diversity that exists within the church, and some of it is really dark. We identify ourselves with these things, and I think Obadiah is just pressing upon us. In the midst of these conflicting moments, we cannot forget this is family. They don't cease to be family simply because you have conflict, simply because hurt exists. That's the nature of family. This is your brother. This is your sister. And when conflict arises, when disagreement arises, the church must address these things differently. It's this, this reminder Obadiah presses upon us. But it's, it's much easier to take a different kind of path than what Obadiah is, is offering us. It's easier to forget the forgiveness of Esau because obviously that's, that's hard. That feels like being walked all over. Um, and it, it's much more gratifying to watch the person who has wronged you suffer the consequences of the thing they've done. We sit around waiting for that so often. It is so much more gratifying and satisfying to see that, to be able to say, you deserve it. I told you so. I mean, there are a few words in the English language more satisfying, right? Like, we like it. On the other hand, there is something very painful and sacrificial about choosing to forgive someone. One thing, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, that, that comes easy. And it feels good to watch someone pay for what they've done. And we find ourselves just kind of rejoicing in their downfall, even as Edom does. The Germans famously have a word for it, like they were good, they're good at language. It doesn't sound pretty, but they're very utilitarian and practical. They got a word for everything, and their word for this experience is schadenfreude, right? Maybe you've heard schadenfreude. It means joy in your enemy's suffering, right? We choose to rejoice in somebody's loss, their misfortune, their downfall, their suffering. And that's what Obadiah is getting at. When he says to Edom, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor should you rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. But come on. We all know that feeling. It's familiar to us. We relish it, those moments. And at its best, I mean, it looks like Saturdays, right? Let's be real. Who doesn't like watching Auburn almost lose to some, like, no-name school out of Georgia, right? Georgia State is a small school that's only had a football team for a couple of years, right? We're all just like, come on, that'd be cool, right? Or on the other hand, if you live in the state of Alabama, you resent the University of Alabama, and you would love to watch their, their cruel reign of terror come to an end, right? You, you like watching the Yankees lose. You like watching the Lakers lose. I'm sorry, Jonathan, regardless of who plays there, people like to watch certain teams lose, right? That's that feeling at its best, but at its worst, we relish in some of the darkest moments of people around us, quietly, right? We, we keep it to ourselves most of the time, maybe not, 
But we find ourselves rejoicing in those moments when somebody else is suffering because they deserve it. Simply because those moments validate me. See, I was right. I'm not crazy. I'm not losing my mind. I was not in the wrong here. You were, right? It validates me when I watch that sort of thing play out. And if we're being real, we're living through that kind of moment right now. We are living through that moment. We are a culture that is, obviously, it's well documented. We are deeply divided at the present moment. And so many people sit around waiting for the moments of our enemy's failure, the person who hurt us to experience that moment of, of misfortune, for some scandal to erupt in their lives that ends their career, right? Because they deserve it. Like, we, we have these things happening. We're, we're just waiting for that moment when it will finally unfold. We hope for the, the day when the person who hurt us will experience their own hurts. We're not going to be the ones to do it, but hopefully someone will, right? And if you think about it, and we're, we're, we're talking about years of this. It's just flourishing within our culture. In 2016, there's a whole world of people who are waiting with expectation and hope for the day when Donald Trump would fail, right? I need him to fall. Forget the implications of his failure for our nation and for so many people within it. That doesn't matter. It would just feel so good to watch the man fail, right? 2020, same story, just a different guy. It'd be so good just to watch the man fail. When will, when will it come? When is the day of his downfall? We just sit and wait on the president to fail, right? Throughout the pandemic, I think a lot of people have felt it. Like that moment where somebody you know, maybe who's made a very public stance on the fact that they don't wear masks and they're not getting vaccinated, right? That sort of stuff. And then you watch them get sick and you think to yourself, like, hate to tell you, but I told you so. This is what I've been waiting on. It validates me. I'm not crazy, see? Then on the flip side of that, right, you got the people who are saying, wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a, so, so you who've been so cautious, you've been wearing your mask and you've got that vaccine in you, and yet there are people getting sick and dying. See, I'm not crazy. I told you so. We just relish in those moments. It happens over and over again. And it feels good for a minute before we realize just how dark that is, that we're rejoicing in the fact that, that someone else's life is in danger, right? It sneaks up on you. You don't even know how you let yourself get to that sort of place. And Obadiah recognized it. It happened to Israel. It happened to Edom. And even though he's speaking to a different situation, his words hit us hard. And it's the same way for Israel. Even though he's talking about Edom, his words hit Israel hard. Like, the substance of what Obadiah is getting at is this. You need to be really careful on the day of your enemy's downfall. Be careful what you do on that day, that day of, of scandal, on that day of failure, on that day of divorce, whatever it might be that somebody is going through. You need to be really careful what you do. Why? Because what you do on the day of your enemy's misfortune, their downfall, it says more about your heart than it does about theirs. Regardless of, of, of what they may have done. Like in those moments we think, well, see, it's fitting, right? That, that you're going through this, especially in light of what you did. No, it says more about us than it does about them in those moments. And Obadiah forces us to confront it. 
regardless of what somebody has done to you, regardless of what you've suffered, if it turns into hatred or bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart, their sin has now become yours. You've embraced it. You now become guilty in a different sort of way. Their hard-heartedness becomes my own. Nobadiah is saying, this cannot be the way of God's people. You've seen what it looks like when it happens to you. Don't be guilty of the same thing. I really think that's where the entire book hinges on, right? This, this verse he speaks, it's verse 15. And he's, he's laying out this entirely different sort of pattern that he wants us to adopt. He says this, this little line. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. As you've done, it will be done to you. They're words that, that, that just make sense. If you rejoice in the suffering of those you have issues with, those who have hurt you, then expect that the same is going to happen for you. Expect that when you fail someone else, that when you inevitably hurt someone else, the same thing is going to return upon you. You're going to experience the same thing. They're rejoicing in your suffering. You'll suffer the same fate. And that's a, it's a cruel reality of our lives that I think we're all familiar with. We've seen that unfold. We've watched that play out. Unforgiving people, bitter people, generally only become more so. It's this interesting sort of thing. We all recognize it, and yet it doesn't necessarily keep us from becoming more and more bitter. But the same sentiment that has shaped that one relationship begins to shape us. It shapes us in this way that, it, that it's, it's so perpetuated in our lives because at the simplest level, people who never forgive anyone else are, are the hardest to forgive, right? It's really hard to forgive a person who never lets go of a grudge, who doesn't know how to let something go, right? That's a, a really difficult thing. Obadiah recognizes it. He gets it. He understands it, right? But more than that, here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that the people who struggle to forgive others often struggle to receive forgiveness? Because here's the thing. At some point, if you live by this oppressive, unbending, unforgiving standard toward those around you, you find yourself in your moments of failure where you've hurt someone else, you have to subject yourself to the same oppressive and unforgiving standard. Even when people are willing to offer you forgiveness, you don't know how to take it. You don't know how to receive the thing they're offering you. Because you don't think you're, you're worthy of it. You don't think you deserve it. That's how you see the world. People who do wrong should suffer for it. That's how it should always work. And Obadiah is saying, your bitterness and your unforgiveness will only be returned on your own head. It's only going to be turned around on you. And again, I think this is where the book of Obadiah is so important because that sounds so much like Jesus. Like you can really hear Jesus' voice. You can really hear the Sermon on the Mount in Obadiah's words there. There's this reciprocal sort of quality to what Obadiah is saying. When he's, he's speaking in, in the book of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's Matthew chapter 6 where the disciples are being taught to pray. There's that line in the Lord's Prayer, he says, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the pattern. 
There's that reciprocal sort of reality to the kingdom of God. Forgive us as we forgive. You keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. There's, there's something none of us can forget. Do unto others what you would have them do to you, right? It's reciprocal. You go a little bit further in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, a little bit further on, he says, Judge not unless you be judged, for with the measure that you judge others, it will be measured to you. He's not saying don't judge ever. He's saying just keep in mind how you judge is going to be turned around on you. There's this reciprocal reality. You're going to experience the same thing. The essence of what he's saying is what you're going to receive from me, what we've received in Christ, and what we continually need from him, and what we will inevitably need from others in our lives because we will fail. We will hurt someone else inevitably. That same thing has to become a pattern in our lives. It's not just a thing that's been done to us that we celebrate. No, it becomes part of who we are. It changes our worldview, our perspective, the way we think about these things completely. Receiving forgiveness is supposed to do something in us. It ought to do something. It ought to enable us to forgive in a different sort of way. It opens us up and opens our eyes to the incredible possibility, the incredible power of just forgiving someone without reason, without cause whatsoever, regardless of whether they're deserving of it or whether they've acknowledged it, the deep freedom that can be found in the thing. Jesus is saying, you're just going to receive the same thing that you give. Obadiah is saying, what you give Expect that that's what you're going to receive, right? There's this reciprocal reality to the thing. So yeah, we ought to forgive. We all, y'all already knew that before you came here. And just because I'm saying it doesn't mean you're going to leave here and actually live according to that. Like we all know these things, right? Like, like we get it. We even feel it. We sense the spirit pressing those things upon us sometimes. Like that doesn't make it easy though. Make no mistake, forgiveness is inconvenient and painful. It is the harder path, right, as Jesus says. It is the narrow path and not the wide one. Bitterness is far easier and it is far more common with our human condition. It's far more a part of who we are naturally. It's honestly much more gratifying, at least in the moment. If we're talking about just simple, instant gratification, it is much more gratifying when you see those who've hurt you get what you feel like they deserve. It just does. Man, like we don't have to pretend about it. Forgiveness, on the other hand, takes a lot longer to do its work. So often, you will not get to experience the joy of forgiveness in that moment. It'll be months. It'll be years before you recognize the value of choosing to do that before it begins to make any sort of difference in you or whoever you've forgiven, right? That's just going to happen. Maybe it's going to be a while. But I think what Jesus is getting at, and I think what Obadiah is trying to help the people of Judah see, is like, don't become those people because the joy that comes in this different sort of way of life, in forgiveness, it transforms relationships rather than destroys them, right? It's the beginning of something. It opens your eyes to all this possibility. It's hard, and yet, there's this constant reminder. This is not just a nice-sounding thing that Jesus said in a sermon. When the moment came for Jesus to curse his enemies, instead, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
When the moment came, right? That's what Peter was feeling deep in himself while he watched Jesus being arrested. That's why he pulls his sword immediately. That's much more gratifying. And Jesus embraces something else. He's not just telling us this. He's not speaking hypothetically. He looks at his murderers and he says, forgive them. Jesus wrestled with the same question that you and I do, surely. He was a man who was falsely accused. He was a man who was unfairly treated. And surely he must have had the question like, when will I be vindicated? Right? Surely that's part of what he's wrestling with at Gethsemane. What will you do with those who have wronged me? Yet, in forgiving his murderers, I think Jesus is doing more than just showing us the substance of the gospel. You can see it. In hearing those words from Jesus, you begin to recognize what Jesus is doing, what we're experiencing in the gospel, the deepest, most unbelievable kind of forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness. But there's more. In forgiving his murderers, Jesus is is once again submitting to his Father. Because as he wrestles with the question that you and I do, right? When will I be vindicated? What are you going to do with those who've wronged me? Forgiveness is this unique way of submitting to God. It's a unique way of saying, I recognize God is just. Every time I choose to forgive, I'm acknowledging there is a judge of this universe, and I am not him. I'm not good at that. I don't know what someone deserves because I've not been treated by what I deserve, right? And every time I choose to forgive, I'm embracing that, that God is just, that he is the one who vindicates, that he is the judge, and I can trust him. Every time I choose to forgive someone, I say, that, that's not my business. That's not what I do. I'm embracing that he's the judge. I'm believing that he's just. And I am choosing to do unto others what has been done to me. I'm choosing to forgive without cause, without condition. And I, I think what's so beautiful about the rhythm of what we're doing as a community, every time we come to the Lord's Prayer, there's a rhythm to it. Jesus intended that, right? It was a daily sort of reality he was inviting us into. Pray this way. Again and again, we're reminding ourselves, even as you're asking for forgiveness, be learning this pattern, this whole different sort of perspective. Learn to forgive, right? The same thing is true of the table. We come every week, and there's this reminder of our forgiveness and the cost of our forgiveness, the very body of Jesus is on the line. His blood being poured out, right? Every time we receive the body and blood of Jesus, we are more deeply being shaped by his gospel. It's not just a thing we're talking about. It becomes a part of us, right? We're allowing the gospel to shape us further. And every time we choose to embrace what Obadiah is teaching, don't be hateful. Don't rejoice in the day of your enemy's downfall. You don't have to. Like learn this different sort of pattern. And every time we do it, every time we embrace forgiveness, we are further embracing the gospel of Jesus. We're further beginning to understand who Jesus really is. Because bitterness and unforgiveness is far from the fruit of the Spirit. 
It's far from who Jesus was. If you want to become more like Jesus, then you have to begin to embrace that ugly part of what it was for him to take up his cross. When we're called to take up our cross and follow him, this is part of the reality of it. And there's something so deeply freeing, something so deeply life-giving about it, something so transformative that happens in the act. We know that. We are the, the recipients of it, and we're being invited to become the givers of it. So the band's going to come, and we're going to move toward the table. And I don't have any way of, of knowing uh, like where everybody's at, um, but I know that as unfamiliar as Obadiah is, he speaks powerfully to the moment we find ourselves in corporately, I think as a nation, uh, in the world even. Um, and I think it speaks as, as well powerfully to who we are as individuals, our own individual circumstance. I just want to invite you guys into that. Pray what that looks like. And not just in the things that have happened to you in the past, but how you see the people around you in those moments that are less than flattering to them, right? Those terrible things that you're going to see perpetrated against you or against somebody you love or value. How are you going to respond? How do you deal with this? What is this differing perspective that Jesus has given us? So we invite you guys to the table. You can come, tear off a piece of bread. There's gluten-free options, obviously, uh, and there's also um, just these little cups with the piece of bread in there for those of you who feel a little bit more comfortable with that uh, in the midst of the, the, the pandemic life. We've got all of that available to you. Come uh, as they're playing uh, and receive the body and blood of Jesus. I'll call us back all together and we'll partake together. Father, we thank you for these moments gathered around your word. We thank you uh, for the places in your, your scripture, God, that we're less familiar with, but that you speak just as powerfully through. And God, we pray that you would continue um, in these days, in this series, that you continue to press the whole of your scripture upon us. That from start to finish, it is all good and you are speaking through it and all of it moves us toward your son, Jesus. Now open our eyes and, and transform our, our, our perspective, Lord. Free us from bitterness, from hatred, Open us up to who Jesus really is. Enable those of us who have struggled to receive your forgiveness or that of others around us, God. Enable us to receive it at the depth of our being in these moments that we might be further free to, to do it ourselves. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.